0: Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. In 2021 alone, local founders have raised more than $5 billion in VC dollars, making Chicago a national destination for founders, investors, and innovators. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago drives growth and opportunity for our local tech economy and innovation ecosystem through its flagship programs such as the Chicago Venture Summit. Startup Chicago, Think Chicago, and Venture Engine. Learn more via worldbusinesschicago.com. It's a pleasure to have a fellow podcaster on the show. I think you are the first fellow podcaster that I've had on the show. So just a huge day all around.
1: (laughs) There we go. I'm excited, man. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast and I like the niche that you guys have created in Chicago. So kudos to you.
0: Thanks, man. Really, really appreciate it. I have to give you kudos. The The name of your podcast is awesome. It's pithy. It sticks out. <laughs> How did you guys go about finding that name, picking that name?
1: Yeah, it's always interesting, right? Like with names, whether it's for a podcast or a, or a business idea, I feel like, you know, it, it might not be the biggest priority at first, but it's certainly the one that sometimes seems the real importance. <laughs> let's grab coffee. What ended up happening for us, like we, so we started the podcast in uh, sort of twenty late twenty fifteen, I should say. Started my career with uh, TSX, so you know, an associate in capital markets. Starting out a podcast almost five years ago was kind of crazy because everyone looked at me and they're like, "What are you trying to be?" You know, Jimmy Fallon or like a talk show host, basically. And I'm like, you know, you'll you'll eventually realize the the importance of what we're trying to do. But at that time, I, I just loved networking, you know, and I was trying to meet a lot of people. I was trying to grow the the network. And everybody of my email would be, "Hey, let's grab coffee." And at some point, I because I loved it so much, and I was actually passionate about coffee. To be honest, I, you know, originally Middle Eastern, so uh, coffee is a big thing back home, especially socially. Where that that's kind of the difference between the way we drink coffee. And you can even realize that our cups are around. and typically we have it in a circle. You never have it independently. When I immigrated to Canada, it was something that I realized. You know, people would have Tim Hortons and take it back to their desk and just drink coffee solo. So that was a bit of a cultural shift for me. I just wanted to bring back coffee where it's in a set or a stage where you're networking, you're having a good conversation. And I figured, why not record it? You know, it's kind of selfish for me to just have these conversations and keep it to myself. And I just figured it'd be nice to share it with the broader community.
0: Yeah. And also, you know, you probably started the show around the rise of comedians and cars getting coffee. So that was just right, right. free <laughs> advertising for you. Um, it
1: was validating.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You were on at something, the coffee talk show centric, you know, yeah, the juices were flowing. I'd love to back it up a little bit before, you know, the founding of Let's Grab Coffee and just give listeners an idea of your background, you know, how you sort of got the entrepreneurial bug and sort of what you're working on today, because you're working on a lot of interesting initiatives. You know, I think you're what you're doing with the Chicago ecosystem and the connection to Canada is amazing. So, you know, if you could just give people a 30,000 foot overview.
1: Sure. So uh, quickly, like just on the on the personal side, I was born in Lebanon, grew up sort of half of my life across the Middle East, mostly because my dad was working in different places. So we moved around quite a bit. Uh, I probably went to like six different high schools, you know, when when I was younger. So it gave me a chance to also see different cultures, you know, different religions, ideologies, and that was, I think, really important, especially fast forward today. So that was kind of the the personal stint. We immigrated to Canada. And then fast forward to to university, I grew up in a a household of of mostly bankers. So my dad, you know, during his career headed mostly uh, treasury desks uh, for pretty big wholesale banks, you know, hedging for currencies and stuff. So I grew up in that environment and, you know, 16 years old, like reading commodity books and whatever. And I, I, I just, I thought that was so cool. And my dad never really pushed it on me. It was just kind of, um, I got bit by the bug almost. And in university, we we started this uh, investment fund. It was a student-run investment fund for the first one actually out of Telfer. We got a sponsor at the time who was an executive at TSX. And so that that's how all these connections came together. So he became one of my closest mentors, started my career at the Toronto Stock Exchange, which funny enough in 2015, as I was starting this podcast, that was kind of my entrance into entrepreneurship. Dude, it's crazy because, you know, you look at a company like Shopify, what I tell the story of, quite a bit. And just seeing them go public in 15 was was so cool. And at that point, I still was really heads down on finance, like pure finance, you know, because in university, and at the time at least, we didn't really have a crossover of the different things you can do in cap markets. So I wasn't, to be honest with you, I didn't even know what VCs were, even graduating fourth year of university, because still at the time, I wasn't really close to that bubble. I knew entrepreneurship as like business 101, you know, brick and mortar. Like that's what it sounded like to me. I didn't know of these communities. Until I, I joined TSX, the capital markets, it really opened that gateway for me. I was like, this is insane. You know, I'm seeing this company that started off as a site called Snow Devils, you know, that if you fast forward 10 years, I mean, it's insane, the the reach of Shopify, raising more than $100 million at a one point, I think $3 billion valuation. Look at it today. You know, I mean, it's, I, I don't know, probably $70 billion, I think is their, their last value, something around that. I could be off. So that was exciting because I was like, "This is the Super Bowl," you know, "This is the Emmy of what entrepreneurship was like." So, spent three years there as an associate, left, did a stint in in M and was like, "I need to see what I need to see what this M and A world is like." And and as an entrepreneur, those are typically the two exit paths you have, right? Either getting acquired or or IPOing. And I really wanted to see what that was like. And it was interesting to get into M and without a without a CFA or MBA, to be honest, which was kind of cool because it's kind of neat to, to show people that you can charter your own course without fundamentally sticking to the traditional route. And for me, that was BD, right? So I figured out in cap markets and finance strategically, there was less supply of folks who actually did strategic business development with a substantial finance background. So that was my whole stint. It was like, let me work with these boutique firms and help open up their offices. So it kind of became like international business almost within finance. And then I got scooped up by a, a really, really cool fintech startup called Dabble Shout out to them. The founders are still super close friends of mine, and it's a rocket ship, dude. Super exciting. Uh, and then, Matt, what ended up happening is I started dating, and my girlfriend at the time, who also was in Toronto, moved to Chicago. So, you know, a year in, anybody who's listening did long distance. You know what I'm talking about? It's it's not an easy life. And you know, she's doing psychology five year program. So I I was intent on moving here, right? So always had a good bridge with TSX, had a couple of conversations, and they're like, listen, we're really bullish on the Midwest. Our biggest presence is where we want to focus on, aside from Canada, is really the US market. What do you think of starting up our office in Chicago? And I'm like, Chicago, I never really, to be honest, as a career map, never had it in, in my mind or kind of on, on the books and did a couple of trips here, loved it. And here we are today. So I'm, I'm basically heading up the office for the Toronto Stock Exchange, TSX Venture, uh, focus on the Midwest primarily with the objective of helping private companies here go public on our markets.
0: I feel like there's almost a symbiotic relationship between the Midwest in Chicago and Toronto. I know there's True. tons of VCs based in Chicago, based in the Midwest, who see Toronto as the next startup hub and Toronto is the place that they want to find, you know, the next avalanche of, you know, successful early stage companies, whether it be because of valuation, because of, you know, the universities and all and all the smart talent pool that's there. What do you think about that relationship? What do you think about sort of the you know the, the the development of that? Is that something you see on your end as well?
1: Yeah, it's a very good point. And I, I do think that there's a lot of crossover, right? So one obviously that the biggest reason is proximity, but super close, right? An hour, an hour and a half, you're in Toronto. Uh the second part is the culture is very similar, Midwesterners to Canadians. Canadians say sorry a little bit more, but you know, that aside, I think it's quite similar. The culturally and also the in the way we do business, right? It's you have to earn your reputation. It's very trust-based first, so it's kind of different than the coasts. And the third part, which is related to the coasts, is we have this sort of hunch on our shoulders, similar to Midwesterners, that we can do this without the help of Cali or or New York, right? I think the other underlying sort of underlying categories here is also, to your point, the similarities in in how our infrastructure is set up. In Canada, you have a bunch of really good early-stage infrastructure by way of incubators or accelerators, like DMZ, as an example, is one of the world's best business accelerators, similar to 1871. You also have a lot of focus on the life size side, right? Even in Montreal, not just in Toronto, but Montreal is another big hub as well for AI, for blockchain, through like Creative Destruction Lab as an example. You look at Communitech in Waterloo. Waterloo's quite similar, in my opinion, to Carnegie Mellon, right? They kind of have that divide within robotics, within life sciences space as well, similar to Boston as an example. So you have these pockets where we're just incubating these super innovative ideas. And people might not be aware, but you know cryptocurrencies like ethereum were started in canada right so obviously even on the blockchain side su- super innovative and and sort of leading the the way on on that front and then aside from that your last point i, I do think that us investors always want to find alpha right like where can they find those arbitrage opportunities that no one else is looking after and in some categories especially in the midwest if you have a low supply of of really quality companies. Not that there is, I'm just saying that if everybody's scooping in and, and financing the companies we all know of, they want to look elsewhere. And it makes sense geographically to look up north where, historically speaking, you get great fundamentally sound businesses at valuations that are more reasonable.
0: No, totally, totally. I mean, God, you mentioned so many points there that I completely, completely agree with. I mean, CDL, Creative Destruction Lab right. is, to this day, one of my favorite sourcing experiences in VC. I mean, what they... What was your start- with them? We worked with my fund I was previously at. We were a sponsor, so we got access to their database. And so we set up a bunch of calls with some of those companies and and for all their cohorts, because I understand it. You know, they, they have their Ontario cohort and they have a few other cohorts geographically located. But you just get access to this massive database, and for each company, there's almost it's the most amount of, of helpful data all in one place for private enterprises I've ever seen. It's like a Bloomberg terminal for enterprises. They give you everything from the mission of the company to what other VCs sort of think about that company. You know, these are highly vetted and feel like at the end of the day, they might not be the best fit for your fund. They do feel like they're the cream of the crop, and everybody I dealt with there was nothing but you know extremely nice, extremely polite, so you know right. I think it, was, it feels like a very Canadian place from that perspective. I, I'd love to hear about the work you guys. we could dig in a little bit more to to what your responsibilities are at TMX and, and what your mandate is from an investment standpoint, if there's stages you look for, check sizes, et cetera.
1: Yeah, so if, if you look at it, it's always a good question, right? Like what, what's And when I first moved here, I mean, two things were apparent. One. Not a lot of people knew about us. It wasn't shocking. I just don't, you know, they knew TSX primarily, but not maybe TSX Venture and and really how we can help private companies. Maybe they knew us as like, oh, TSX, okay, stock exchange, we can trade companies that already trade. Great. If you look at the premise, the reason why I think the US makes a lot of sense, specifically the Midwest, is because historically speaking, and even still today, most companies, and let's just focus on tech for now usually don't think about public markets here until they're at a much later stage, You know, usually the billion-dollar-plus market cap. And that's for several reasons, some including the, the cost to going public, the regulatory burdens to going public, and a few others. The U.S. cap markets are set up really, really nicely for more mature businesses. You have great exchanges, NASDAQ, NYSE, right? But the, the sort of smaller to, to mid-stage sometimes gets ghosted when it comes to cap markets and how companies at that stage can actually benefit from looking at, at the capital markets if it's right for them so that's the, the first most important premise when we moved here uh, two years ago we're trying to figure out this product market fit of course like any any entrepreneur would and if, especially if you're developing uh, developing a market and it was very apparent to me that again similar to toronto you have this great early stage infrastructure you have several earlier stage vcs a couple of late stage as well and then sort of post series b it becomes it's like a filter right it becomes a bit smaller on the funnel and in are deeper on the VC side, so you can attest to this maybe, or, or challenge me on it. Nonetheless, we can also work in parallel. So if you look at how we can help companies, we'll, maybe we'll dive into it, but you know, TSX Venture is this junior exchange that uses the same technology as the TSX. So fully bonafide, regulated. The only difference is these are smaller companies, Matt, that are actually going public and raising anywhere from like two to $50 million public capital. And at some point when they get large enough, they can uplist the TSX. So think of this if you're a ball fan, you know, NCAA to NBA, right? Zion Williamson going from Duke to to the Pelicans, basically is the analogy. And the cool part is that we don't close the doors there. Many companies, including ones like Shopify, can end up actually dual listing on a major US exchange. So that's kind of the beauty, that for earlier stage companies who can benefit from raising the less dilutive capital, you know, the shares to make acquisitions, the, the profile exposure, the liquidity, you can tap into public markets at an earlier stage so more flexible requirements, a cost that's more reasonable, and then come back to the U.S. when you're right for it, instead of having to wait until you're a billion dollar plus company to make that kind of dream a reality per se. Uh, and then just quickly to answer your question, what we're trying to do here, a couple of things, man, but put simply, I just want to be seen as, as one financing option on that menu. You know, when, when com- companies are thinking about raising cap, we just want to be considered on that financing option. Again, it's not going to be right for a majority of companies. That's the truth not every company is right for public markets and that's fine but there are certain companies where it's right for one we just want them to know about us if it's right for them two we'll help quarterback the full process but in the middle you know as you know being in chicago like you have to do a bit more than that right so for us it's focusing on brand partnerships like with world business chicago on the venture summit midwest connect with Sandolphin. We we were partners on both those events Um, it's also being an ecosystem partner too right so i can't just sit here my thumbs and hope for companies to list. It's not going to happen. I'm doing the the reverse. So I'm spending most of my time building an ecosystem with capital providers and even folks like you, of course, and just being a good source of deal flow. And then at some point, they'll boomerang once companies grow or, you know, by word of mouth, because we're seen as someone who's actually being a value versus just being in the business of ask, ask, ask. I'm, I'm more on the, you know, give, 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 and then, and then receive at some point when it's right.
0: So uh, you're buying coffee for your guests, I assume, when they're coming. One hundred percent. Yeah, send it so up. You okay. should, you should right. see my
1: expense list. It, it's literally only Starbucks and and, Umbria and Goddess. That's, that's literally the. <laughs> it's like ninety percent. The category is ninety percent coffee on mint. So. Uh.
0: Oh, that's incredible. Do you find there's you know when you're approaching these companies who maybe don't know the background of TMX or TSX and you're kind of having those initial conversations? Do you feel just given the general venture environment today, with companies staying private longer, everyone's seeing these models of, you know, billion, you know, massive, massive companies like Stripe just staying private. Do you find there's more of a sales pitch that you need to do? There's more apprehension maybe to your model that you just need to get over at the very outset, because it's almost hardwired into founders brains now that have to stay longer? Or is that kind of something that the media overblows? And it's it's a little bit more of a of a more nuanced situation when you get down to it?
1: yeah it's a, it's a good question and it's tough to say because th- there that if you want to look at it that's sort of on one end of the the spectrum on the other end actually it's quite the inverse and and maybe that's that's because of this past year and a half so i'm not sure historically if that's always been the case it's probably what you were explaining but if you look at the past year and a half it's quite the inverse in the sense that what's happening is again you're much more experienced in this space than i am but if you look at what's going on it's basically financing rounds are more compressed So typically when you'd find like between the seed stage and the series A and the series B, there would be at least let's say 6, 12, 12 to 36 months, right? Time for companies to actually get ready, figure out their internal controls, and then think of an exit, whether it be an IPO, an M&A or anything else. Now it's like seed to series A, dude, can happen. It's like you raise a seed and then you're immediately raising your series A. And so they're they're jumping kind of growth stages much quicker. And as a result of that, have to get ready much faster for whatever is about to come later on. So I, I think we're also seeing that part. In terms of the pitch, what I've seen so far in the Midwest, and we have two two case studies, you know, in, in sort of the pipeline that are hopefully coming to market soon, which I'm, I'll be excited to, to share more publicly shortly. But I think patterns that I've seen is one, it could be regional, so meaning that you know we have a company in a region within the Midwest that doesn't get as much exposure as even let's say Chicago, which again Chicago compared to the U.S. is still fighting for, for that visibility. Right. And so for a company like that could be fundamentally great, you know, seasoned serial entrepreneur in in the management suite, but just not getting the the capital that they're they're, they're trying to raise. And so public markets could be a good avenue, specifically if they're in a subsector that's more nascent in nature, right? Think like drone delivery, the life sciences space, clean tech, you know, sports betting or sports analytics, like these are ones that are still newer. And historically speaking, public markets tend to spend risk capital a bit quicker. Crypto and blockchain are a good example. We had companies listed in, in the mine, in the blockchain mining space or the crypto mining space in like 16, 17, right? I mean, you're now seeing VCs kind of tap into it. So th- that's one. The other one I'd say too is uh, sometimes, honestly, valuations for certain subsectors could be more attractive on the public markets. Again, not always the case by any means. It's three, five. I don't know, let's say three to five years ago, it used to be the opposite. But now, again, those sectors that I mentioned, but even things like plant-based as an example, you're just seeing multiples on the public markets that are attractive. And if you want to call it a window, call it that. But right now there's an opening for certain companies to tap into capital that is much more attractive than it used to be.
0: And when you're going through, I'd love to um, dig a little bit into the due diligence process or how you how you vet these companies. Sure. You know, I've, I have a friend... Roommate worked in investment banking, still does, you know, for five years doing IPOs. Uh, you know, I have friends in private equity. Um, obviously, I'm in venture capital, and, and and your model is so interesting to me. What is the due diligence process like for for you? What's the what's the vetting process like?
1: Yeah, it's a good question because sometimes, and this I don't know if you remember this, but like finance was always explained to me as a science and an art, right? So there is a lot of art actually in in especially the early stages of doing diligence on a company, I guess, similar to like a seed or a series A stage VC fund. The art comes in the intuition of having had so many conversations with CEOs or the C-suite management team as a whole to know whether public markets are right for them or not. Uh, and, and this could come by way of uh, just their demeanor, you know, what they're focused on, what they're motivated by. A couple of these things will give you hints as to whether or not this is a right fit. So that's more intuitive. The science comes in objectively on a couple of factors that we want to look for right off the bat. And obviously, this varies by sector. So you might ask me, like, what's the minimum revenue threshold, right, for certain companies? And it's going to vary. If It's a mining company versus a tech company. Financially speaking, we look at different things. Nonetheless, for tech companies, ideally, we'd want to see companies in the post-revenue stage, right? It could be pre-revenue in very specific cases. They still have to demonstrate that revenue map uh, within a two two year timeline, but nonetheless, you know, post revenue uh, at minimum, you know, five hundred thousand in can Canadian dollars, uh, doing it at least the two million dollar financing. That's sort of the smallest threshold we could look at on the TSX venture. So that's that's one. The other one that that's that's super important is also the subsector they play in. You know, there are ones right off the bat that the SaaS software space. You know, DeFi right now is getting a lot of momentum. Again, the plant based space, ESG or anything related to Uh, sort of the e-waste space, there's a couple of culprits that, you know, if you look at the markets, it's very momentum driven. So sometimes there are subsectors that just get more attractiveness because that's what the clients of these investment banks are looking for. And so they then go to the market and work with exchanges to figure out if there are companies in market that are looking at uh, going public. You know, obviously other things are uh, how, how seasoned is the management team? A couple of things you want to look for here. What we typically don't like to see is you know, uh, let's say a CEO who's, who's made a killing in one sector, in this example, let's say cannabis, uh, and then starts a software company with no proven historical track record in this in the software space, but just made a killing and wants to start something. Right. You probably might have seen this as well. I see you nodding. But we also want to hopefully see some PubCo experience. You know, have have they taken a company public? Have they been on the board of a public company? And if not on the management side, which I know in the U.S. is harder to find, can we complement that on the board? right? So so there's a couple of things we want to look for there, but ultimately, to be honest with you, Matt, if I were to simplify this, the most important thing, aside from the requirements that they have to meet to make sure they're eligible, the most important thing, and obviously readiness, is the reality. Can this story be financed, especially if they're looking for capital? And so the, the best thing to do first is pair them up with a couple of deal makers or investment makers, and let's see if there's interest. Engaging interest is the best telling sign of one, is this the right time? Two, is this the right fit for the public markets? Because without that, everything else is more administrative in nature, to be frank.
0: Yeah, do you, I mean, the topic of CEOs is so interesting. I mean, it's such a such a salient point because, you know, I, I've had conversations with VCs and there's this uh, paradox of, you know, first time founders can sometimes uh, have a rough go of things, especially in more conservative capital environments like a Chicago, uh, especially if they're pre-revenue, you know, so getting that seed round, pre-seed round can almost be impossible. But then there is the flip side of that coin where, yeah, there are the founders who just minted it at their last startup. and And, and I always kind of have this mental model of like, did they just crush it to the point where, you know, their kids are now through college, you know, they're, they're set because then you worry about the, 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 hunger and the desire and the grit the and motivation. all those things, the motivation. So it's this, I don't, it's this two sides of a coin that is the art part of it. what makes this job fascinating. Do, do you find with founders? I mean, another thing I've always wondered about is, and because you see this up close, you see them interact with investment bankers, you see them go through this process. Do you find that you found founders in the past who great operators, great founders from Precede through through series C D whatever the round is, but maybe they don't have that selling ability. Maybe they don't have that comfort mm-hmm. around being around financiers to, to the level of which you know you guys are taking them to. Um and, and if you found that what do you do? Is there any way to circumvent that? Any way to augment that or, or is that kind of a deal killer?
1: I actually I'm open up my Twitter very quickly. I, I literally tweeted about this not not too uh, long ago, in fact, but just it's an ex- excellent question, by the way. And w- what I would say, especially for the first part, is—and I heard this not too long ago—but it was basically the fact that most VCs are going to look for founders who know how to sell. I mean, it, it's it's as simple as that, to be honest. And and I was just looking for the tweet. This was back in in August, but you know, I had a intro call with a VC. Ask what they look for most in startups, they end up backing. And their response was founders who can sell because a really great product with no customers is just that a great product. Customers are what turn product into a business, right? So I just love that kind of thinking. And it's very true. And we look for the same thing because again, the reality is, and, and probably more prudent for the capital markets, is storytelling is going to be your your strategy you know, really, I mean, it's kind of like what Andreessen says, and they have a great piece on that as well. So the the storytelling aspect is extremely uh, critical, right? And really articulating the vision, the growth, where the business is going, specifically when you're on the public markets to keep that investor attractiveness there constantly. So that's almost the art of what we look for. And it's to your point, it's hard. And this is where it's an art too. And I'm going to relay a question to you in a second here, but I'm curious your take on it. It's, it's tough too, because it's very subjective. I'll give you another example. And this is where my, my question will, to you will come. But sometimes, for instance, you might have a very eccentric founder who you think is not necessarily carrying themselves in the best way possible, right? But that's subjective, because I have a idea of what a profile should be for public markets. If you don't end up you know, pursuing this founder and helping them go through this process, be it VC, public markets, whatever, what if they end up crushing it? Right. Or the opposite. What if you end up, you know, going with your intuition, not proceeding with helping this founder and their eccentric, you know, their ability to be very eccentric actually is, is a negative thing for them. Right. It, it, by eccentric, I mean, here, you know, overly swearing and being too brash and, and all these, you know, characteristics that sometimes you don't necessarily love to see, but you also need the founder to be themselves you can't control that, right? And and you want them to be in their own skin. So it's kind of a fine line. Like, I don't know how, if you've dealt with these weird scenarios in the past, but recently we did and It's a tough call.
0: Yeah, I. it's such a great point. And I think that, In my experience, and it's limited, you know, so, so everything I say should be taken with a grain of salt, but you know, if the founder, if it's authentic, if it's, if it's not a show, if, if they feel, if you feel like at the end of the day, there's still somebody that you want to be in business with for 10 years. And I I also think that what I love to see in those situations is a COO or a co-founder who balances out their, their personality. Um, that's, I think, in, in experiences I've been in where the founder is, you know, a larger than life personality, or they are almost, you know, a TV character out of a movie. That, that's and they my point. Yeah. And they've built this image and this brand and, and be honest, like that is necessary to a degree. I think all the great companies have the founders, at least who've stayed from seed through IPO post, like they do build up this image of themselves and, and this sort of, you know, the Steve jobs distortion field, they always talk about, but I think if they have the self-awareness behind closed doors and with themselves to know, I need someone a little more level-headed. I need somebody who's in the weeds. I need the COO. Who's going to be this, you know, cool breath, uh, cool as of water and and be more, um, sort of, you know, down to earth. That's, that's kind of what I love to see. And that's almost to me, like, Mm -hmm. I love that even more. Okay, like I love this. You're such a distinct personality, but he knows that about himself that he can bring in somebody else who, who, augs, who augments him as a personality. Um, that's kind of how I view it.
1: Correct. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like that, that complimentary piece is super important, right? And again, for public markets, it's important too because you might not have all the facets that are required to run a public company. Very different than a private company, specifically when you're a startup they are two very different things. Uh, so having those pieces, to your point, the self-awareness is important, but also the humility, right? The fact that you don't know everything. And it's one thing to have the bravado or the confidence and the sort of charisma that's required to storytell, because you're right, you have to be the visionary and you have to get people excited. Nobody wants to invest in a story they don't care about, ultimately. Like you have to build that excitement for the story that you're passionate about. If that doesn't come from you, who is it going to come from? You know, so you have to be the one driving it. But there is sort of this, and this is something I've learned, The the art is really trusting your intuition. Like you just know a good character from a bad character. And it's on you through experience, maturity, growth to dissect which ones are in which category, because just because they have the confidence, the bravado, et cetera, doesn't mean they're fundamentally sound character wise and that they're going to build a strong quality business for the long haul. You know, so how do you dissect those two? That's, that's the art. Yeah,
0: you know? and, and 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 it's totally like I think somebody told me once that it, it's just gonna happen. You're you're gonna get it wrong. You're gonna get it wrong a bunch 100%. of times. And even in the short time I've I've been doing this, uh, you know, I've gotten it wrong. I've I've kind of been embarrassed. I've I've put my name and you know, um, staked it on somebody who I thought. And I think a huge kind of mistake I I sometimes would make and still try to avoid today is is looking at someone's resume, their cachet of education. Let's say. Cache of the firms they worked for on their LinkedIn and ascribing to them uh, a value system like okay all right this you know he he went to a, you know a, a great university worked at uh, you know a financial services firm so did I like okay I feel like I know this person already and, and they must be okay right like they must be above board and right. you can't let that sort of you know bypass your actual feeling for them once you're in the room and once the, the vibe they're giving off um, that's just something that I've had to learn uh, but i I'd love to now that we're on the topic of of being a founder of starting your own business uh, I'd love to circle back to let's grab coffee um, It's clearly been a wild ride, you know over five years of running this podcast. Could you walk us through, you know, first off for, for listeners who may not, may or may not be familiar, walk people through what the show is, what you try and do with each episode, you know, some of the seminal moments we can get to.
1: Sure. Sure. Um, quick, quick side note. I don't know if you're a basketball before I dive in, I just have to make this comment. I don't know. Are you a basketball fan? I am. Yeah. Yeah. Do do you ever watch the the long shot with the Duncan Robinson? No, no. No, do you, you got it. I'll send you the link. You're just giving me David Reese uh, vibes. Like he's his, I guess, co-host and, and longtime friend, but I feel like I'm on the logchop pod now. This is pretty I, cool. I thought,
0: um, you, I thought you were about to say uh, JJ Reddick's <laughs> podcast, The Old Man JJ of the Redick? Three. Yeah. And I was no. I was about to literally make you my favorite podcast guest of all time. I was about to stop. But, the
1: rest but, I, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, I, I feel like David has more of your personality though, I would say. I'll take it. it. I'll me. take
0: it. Hey, it's successful podcast. he's got, I'll take it.
1: Uh. <laughs> exactly. Uh, anyways, dude, side note. Uh, so yeah, the let's grab coffee. You know, basically it started five years ago, mostly focused on entrepreneurship. At the time it was a bit more general. Today it's uh, fundamentally you know uncovering the stories of entrepreneurs that are up and coming. My thesis was I, I didn't want to, you know, have the stories of the ones we always read about constantly. Now they're jammed in our faces. The Mark Cubans, the Gary Bees, the Richard Bransons. Like I've seen those stories every fucking time. And I'm kind of like, listen, not, not obviously they they're great entrepreneurs. They've done a, a great job at being successful. But my my challenge with that was it was it wasn't within reach. Yeah. And and that's what aspiring founders would always tell me in my community. It's like George, this is great, but what am I supposed to do with this information? I don't have a billion dollars, and I didn't make a killing during the dot com boom. You know, I'm I'm trying to start a business during COVID. Can you please? Get someone on to talk about what they're doing with a 20 person startup. That's what I care about. You know, this isn't relevant to me, dude. So, uh, and not to say they don't have a a niche. My focus was on this kind of niche to support the up and comers. So, you know, more than 120 episodes in, and even though the CEOs I've had who have been more influential, let's say like Mark Randolph, co founder of Netflix, he was still their early CEO. So that's the beauty of that story. He was their CEO from inception to the day they IPO'd, basically. A couple months later, he phased out. So it's great. And, and that podcast is all about self-awareness. The fact that he stepped down as soon as they IPO'd because he recognized within himself that he was this op- operational founder, you know, and that Reed Hastings was the person to take it from IPO to where it is today. Um, you know, or a, a podcast with Director X, who's the music video producer behind Hotline Bling. You know, works with Greg, Jay-Z, uh, Kanye West That's as an awesome. example. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a great guy, man. You know, and, and but talking to him about his artistic mind, how he puts these things together, more importantly about meditation. You know, he was shot in a club randomly by someone and woke up in a hospital bed and trying to figure out how he can use meditation to reduce violence in, in certain parts of Toronto and across Canada, essentially. So pretty cool perspectives like that and always weaving the entrepreneurial side, I think is, is the the coolest part to me. Uh, Madden, I don't know about you, dude, but this gives me energy. You know, it really, really does when I can sit back and it's the best to be on, on your side, when you're just sitting back, you're asking questions that you're personally curious about. So it's kind of selfish in nature. Like I really want to know these things, you know, and by virtue, I think if you're truly passionate about the conversation, only good things are going to come out of it. Uh, And that's why I've been doing it consistently. It's a side hustle. You know, it's not like uh, my my primary income source. I, I, I genuinely do it for fun. It's bootstrapped, fully financed by me and uh, just because I love it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's I mean, preaching to the choir, I, I, I'd i echo all those things you just said. And I think, um, you know, I, I also have gotten really interested in podcasting strategy. You know, this for me is a side hustle right. as well. And it's not my primary source of income, which affords me liberties in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, tying back to what you said about the types of guests you were going after, kind of similar approach to me, you know, the 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 earlier stage companies, the entrepreneurs who haven't figured it all out yet, and are maybe a little bit more relatable to a broader audience. But, you know, did you ever think about growing the audience, right? Like getting the Mark Randolph's, that's huge for your show. But did you think about that in lockstep with, okay, like, I want to keep this true to what the original goal was, but I also want to source these big name blue chip guests as much as I possibly can. I'm just curious, like how you went about strategizing that.
1: Um, it's interesting. I've never really been asked that. Um, there wasn't really like, it was thoughtful in the sense that you have to kind of balance it to your point. I'm, I'm really you know, interested on the strategy side of things as well, in terms of growing reach, to be honest, cause I really see it as a, as a currency, you know, especially if, if used in the right way. Um, so I'm going to ask that that to you as well, but you know, on my side, it it's bouncing different perspectives. but you know, keeping keeping the theme similar. So even with Mark or even Zev Ziegel, who co-founded Starbucks, like the questions were the same. Even Joe Foster, founder of Reebok, I asked them the similar kinds of themes, you know, like what were the early days like? H- how did you go through the challenges? And it's interesting for entrepreneurs to hear you know someone like Joe Foster as an example, founder of Reebok, come up with a name. You know, it was basically, via a dictionary he won by winning a uh, a running race, right? So he literally got dictionary, flipped it through, top 10 names, Reebok was the first. Something like that, it just, cause I think it dehumanizes in a positive way, this larger than life brand and business to what it once was. And someone listening to that, even looking at a conglomerate now for the most part, you know, and, and brand that you can see everywhere on the street, what it once was and, and you how you can, re- you put yourself in, in their shoes physically and track your own trajectory forward, right? So the theme is always there, but it's important to balance too just for reach, right? Uh, And it actually helps other podcasts. So let's say for instance, I have a, a CEO of a 10 person startup and then the next day I have Mark Randolph. By virtue, you're gonna get new listeners and those new listeners are going to bring more exposure to that 10 person startup CEO, as well as Mark Randolph. So it's actually beneficial for the earlier ones as well.
0: Yeah that's that's kind of exactly how I
1: think about it as well.
0: It's uh right. if, if, if the, the the big guests are a, a really important part um but it's just a comment you made at the beginning, you know, the, the how I built this podcast and, and there's so many of those podcasts, right? The 20 VCs that are built around sort of those, right. you know, the Mount Rushmore or whatever industry, the Titans of industry. Um, and I think it's just, it's an interesting spot to be in where we're at, where you want to shine a light. You want to, you know, uh, give people sort of a, a platform to get their story out there uh, to get their company out there. If they're in the middle of financing, if they're trying to bring on new people, um, but you know that there mm. also has this, this, this underlying goal of, I want this to be as big as possible because I want there to be a brighter spotlight on all of it. So you do have to grind. You do have to hustle to, to, to get some of those big guests. And I'm curious for you, um, any kind of behind the scenes stories of, of how, I mean, this guest list is incredible. Any kind of one anecdote you could, you could share about how you got some of these big name, uh, attractions? Uh,
1: it's a good question, dude. Um, Let's see. So for the most part, like you just to your point, you got to hustle a lot. And I think for anyone, maybe for the pod or the aspiring podcasters listening, understand that in the early days, I had a, a ton of rejections. I mean, I even did a post about this and I shared some of the, the emails and notes. I'll give you one example, but this is more of a funny one, but I won't, I won't name the person's name because he ended up coming to the podcast, became a good friend, was also in Chicago. When I first reached out and this wasn't too long ago, like at this point, my pod, I've already had, Mark Randolph and a few of these big guests literally wrote back to me, I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, hey, uh, thanks for the opportunity. Sorry, I, are you even real? Like, you know, basically it was like, I don't, I mean, this is sketchy, I don't even know. And I had a full blown website dude, and I shared all this materials. He's like, you know, I don't know if I'd wanna come on, like who have you really had on. And I'm like, and, and he's like, I have, a, I have a team with me that has done research. I'm like, what kind of research are you doing? So I, I went back, I you know, I put my foot down there. And I was in a respectful way, obviously, but I was like, you know, here are all my anecdotes and here are all the links. So we'd still love to have you. And it turned out to be a great episode and we became good friends. So that's one of them. Sometimes it's actually don't discount to the, the, the one person away you are from someone. Yeah. You know, I think that's, that's such a critical thing that I've held ever since I started my career. So for instance, like I'm one person away from Drake. That's how I think of it. But to get to the one person from Drake, I had to go through a closer friend who knew Director X much more intimately. I built that relationship, not with that intention, full transparency. I never even, like, even when I was starting my podcast, I never thought he'd be a you know a guest that i have on. It continued to grow, and I followed him on social, and I'm like, this would be cool. So I reached out to my friend, who then was uh, nice enough to, to connect me, but only when I built the platform well enough. So I was patient with that too. Another piece of advice, right? I wouldn't go to direct X when I have two episodes in the game. Because, you know, once I reached out to someone, he's like, listen, I'd like to see a bit more episodes before I come on. And you might get that kind of message. Uh, so a lot of it is LinkedIn. It's easier now because I have these high profiles. Again, why that's important is because it makes reaching out to guests at all stages a bit more seamless. But my, my, my advice would be is, Leverage social channels as much as you can. IG, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh grind, like just like you did, right? Get in the DMs, message, uh, figure out a way to go above and beyond. If it's an email, look at their recent posts, make it more personal. Matt, I, I saw that you did a podcast with George. Love your questions, dude. That Davis Reed comment about the long shot was hilarious. Hey, listen, I got I have a thought too. I'm still in the early game. I think you know how it's like to, you know, to be on the grind day one. I'd love it if you can come on and share your anecdotes are you willing to reply right
0: no it's such a good point it's uh i mean it goes back to this this saying i hear a lot i mean we hear it a lot in business school um but it really brings it home is 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 the worst thing that can happen if you ask is is they say no you know uh it, it's the situation where you have to be willing to put yourself out there you have to be willing to to ask uh sometimes a stranger um but but exactly. yeah it's it's and also I heard Drake's name mentioned in there. Is that, is that a hint that maybe Drake's uh hopping on a let's grab coffee sometime in the future?
1: Let's uh you know, let's hope so, man. We're uh working on some exciting things. I, I think not there yet, not there yet. But hopefully some some good names to come,
0: you know. So for 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 the show, um <laughs> I I'm curious about your distribution strategy. Um, so I want to ask about your distribution strategy and then, you know, larger advice, uh, you might have, because I have a lot of people who come up to me, um, you know, buddies of mine, you know, people from school curious about, they want to start their own podcast so we can touch that. But distribution strategy, um, you know, your product is effectively these interviews that you do. Um, and, and you do all the upfront work and you do the research, you do the sourcing. Um, a sense that I've gotten since I started this podcast, though, is that the distribution is almost, if not more, important than the actual product. Mm-hmm. Figuring out how to get your show into the hands of people is so important. What were some of the early strategies you know you used early on? Was it just social? Was it channel partnerships with newsletters? Uh, how did you sort of go about that?
1: Yeah, it's it's a good point. Um, early days was different than than today. I think for the most part, what I what I've always tried to do is. Um, create really valuable content by creating valuable content. And by valuable content here, I mean, it could be a couple things. It could be documenting an experience the journey of going through something lessons learned thought leadership pieces that are, you know, that you put effort into so that you can make it more readable for the viewer instead of just posting an article, right? Stuff like this over and over again, day in and day out for the past, like six years on LinkedIn, when you build an audience, then you create a platform, right? In our cases, it's a podcast, but my platform could have been a bakery. Once you create that bakery, you're also using content to to sort of document the journey again, right? Sharing lessons learned along the way. And so indirectly, people are going to be gravitating towards your network and your community. I think that's from a 360 view, that's probably been the most important. And the same thing on IG. And so I think if you, why that's important, by the way, is, you know, that whole thing around having a thousand fans. I don't like the word fans. fans, Let's say friends. Yeah. Okay. So let's say a thousand true friends. By virtue, that seems easy, right? Because you're a thousand people. Everybody has probably a thousand followers on IG at least, or like 500. You know, it's it seems like a sort of a, a rudimentary number. But actually, having a thousand true friends who really give a shit about your content, platform, business, whatever, who actually reshare the stuff that you do, who intently want like they they're, they can't wait until you post another episode. Go out of their way to provide feedback. That's what we mean here by true fans or friends. I've always been focused on that, like really, really building true fans by giving value, advice, coming on the podcast, being completely open about what I do or how it's worked for me, etc. More strategically, it's once you do that from a top level, it's then recycling content. So you, we're doing an hour piece, right? That hour piece can be obviously, uh, I would say. distributed in bite-sized content. It can be you know, a, a paraphrase of what we said as a tweet on Twitter. It could be you know, a, a two-minute video of us speaking about a certain topic and then reposting that on LinkedIn. You tag me, I'm gonna reshare that. Now everybody on my network sees it. By the way, even if I don't reshare, if I just like and comment on LinkedIn, most of the people on my feed will see it because they're connected to me. That's the beauty of LinkedIn algorithm and something you don't see on other social channels like IG as an example. IG, I would follow the person I do the podcast with. Hey, listen, great, uh, great interview. Thanks again for coming on. You post that, maybe five times out of 10, they'll probably reshare that story, right? Now, people had followed Director X are like, who the fuck's this guy? You know, what? what is he doing with George? Like, you know, kind of weird. So they're going to look at at your network. They're, the reshareability, I think, is the most important. Every time I've gone, you know, great momentum on an episode by by view count, it's because the person I interviewed reshared it to their network, you know, there's only so many episodes that people are going to give a shit about in your network. To be honest, and if you constantly post every week, they're not all going to be listened to all the time. That's the 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 reality of it. But obviously, things like newsletters, uh, Tim Ferriss would be a great example, right? Again, focus on on value, not just hey, here's my content, shove it down people. It's like take the time to actually sort of extract what was the valuable piece in that episode, give it out you know, maybe it's a fair phrase again. Here's something I've been reading. Here's something I've been thinking about. Here's the full episode. If you want to listen to it and release. And again, patience is really important. It's going to take some time, but curious for you, Matt. I mean, obviously with, with that said, what, what's worked for, for you in in the best way?
0: Getting guests to reshare is so huge. Getting that buy-in and and, and just, you know, again, kind of not being afraid to ask, not being afraid to follow Mm. up and, and, you know, trying to impart that how appreciative you are of their time and how important it is. And to you that, you know, that you, they reshare this, how you know much it does for view, view counts. And, and I think finding partnerships too, that, that are aligned with kind of what the goal of your, your podcast is, you know, like our, our mm-hmm. first sponsor world business, Chicago, like extremely similar goals. Like basically we're trying to do the exact same thing. Um, exactly. so it just, it just, and Julie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. No, love them both. No, that's true, that's true. We, we, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, like the Polsky Center over at Booth, they've got a great newsletter. I mean, it's it's the small things, but um, I can I can say firsthand, like our biggest numbers are always when uh, a second party, whether it be a newsletter or, you know, another podcast um, or just a person who has a really huge following, they reshare us and being acute and strategic with those asks. Um, is, is, is I think a key that we've tried to really like hone and, 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 you know, you know, go back to, you know, George, this has been unbelievable. I think in our closing time, we've already gone over a lot of how to, and, and talked about podcasts. But as I said, I, I have a lot of friends curious about, you know, starting their own podcast. They want to do it about Chicago bears football. They want to do it about private equity, wow. um, at the later stage. Any just larger piece of advice you would give to anyone who's curious about starting one hasn't really jumped in yet, but but is kind of on the fringe.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, I'd say a couple a couple of quick things. One, do it for the right reasons, right? Really ask yourself, like, so let's say you, you really have the epiphany of starting a podcast after listening to this, right? Take a day or two to to settle down you know, simmer down your hyped emotions. Cause that's what happens to me. I get excited about something and then it kind of falters two, three weeks later. If I'm not really, really into it. So take some the time to digest it, ask yourselves uh, why you want to get into it. What, what's the motivation? Am I doing this just because Matt looks cool doing it or George, you know, is getting cool people on the pod. Like, or is it really because I'm interested in Chicago bears? I love that example because the second point is talk about stuff that you really like that you really want to write about. Because that passion and enthusiasm is going to ooze out of the podcast into the person listening. You can tell by tonality, especially if it's an audio podcast. Like if you're, you know, hey, Matt, what's going on, dude? Uh, I guess we're going to do another podcast here. You know, if if you're like almost sighing every time you say something, no one's going to give a crap about it. And the third important part, I think, is focus on a niche. Again, the Chicago Bears example is really good because don't be discouraged if other people are doing something similar. Just like a startup idea, I mean, nine times out of 10, it's not going to be revolutionary. It's going to exist. Someone's probably thought about it. Doesn't mean that it can't work, right? Consistency, patience, playing the long game day in and day out. Understand it's going to require effort, but just get started. Actions are always more important than ideas. And, you know, I have this thought or I wish I could do. None of that matters. You want to do something, you can figure it out. If you and I both have done this as a side hustle, I guarantee every single person listening, you can at least get one episode out, and then you can figure out if it's something you want to continue doing.
0: Yeah, I, I kind of feel like everybody's got something that they could probably start a podcast about. You, every, every, you, everyone has a passion. It's about: if you want to put in the work? Do you can you stand the sound of your own voice? That's that's very important. Yeah. You have to figure that out. Like, <laughs> definitely test that one out at home. But yeah, it's such good advice. And I and I think I mean another one is yeah for me it's always been the venture capital is just this massive space for intellectual curiosity and the concept of it still blows my brain on a daily basis that people make bets on companies at these early stages and then reap those rewards when they become billion dollar companies They're like how like how did you know how did you know then like what did you do what's your secret sauce and for me that's always been it right. it's just this this never ending question that i like still haven't found an answer to that. I feel like just the process of going through it with VCs is what I enjoy, like trying to itch back, like, what is your framework? What's your mental model? How do you come to conviction? Like, why Chicago? These are all the things that really like interest me. And that I just, I wake up wanting to know the answer to. So yeah, and I, I completely agree with everything you said. And and, and George, I, I just, I so appreciate you, you taking the time to hop on. This has been a complete blast and a true honor. And we're going to post the link to Let's Grab Coffee in the show notes. And, you know, thank you once again.
1: My pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Keep fighting the good fight. And I uh, can't wait to, to see where, where this goes for you as well.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much, George. Really appreciate it. Once again, if you do get Drake on the show, I want to co-host that episode with you. You can do it. <laughs> can do it on a less coffee. All right. All right. Great stuff. All right, George. <laughs> take care.